0: So this is the second of three talks on Buddhist practice and the transformation of racism. And it comes at this time when, for many people, there's an opportunity to meet this very intense form of, social suffering, social dukkha that some people call the core wound of the country, there's an opportunity that many think is the greatest opportunity in 50 years. And so the question is, how does that relate to our Buddhist practice, our spiritual practice? So three explorations of that, and then trying to also uh, give a framework that can help people go further in a variety of different ways, including uh, working with Brian, doing one's own explorations and reading and so forth. How many people were able to work with the questions that I gave last time? Many people at least reflected on that some yourself. Yeah, and worked in, how many people actually dialogued with another person? Okay, yeah, so several of you. Um, so the, the framework that I'm using for these three times is actually the traditional framework of training given by the Buddha, the three forms of training that bring us from the ordinary habitual mind, heart, and body to awakening. And those three forms of training in the order that I'm exploring these in relation to working with racism are first the cultivation of wisdom, how we orient ourselves, how we see things, Secondly, meditative practice, which I'm gonna talk about today. And then thirdly, ethical practice, which is really the whole sphere of how we act in the world, how we act in our immediate relationships, in our communities, and in the larger, larger world. So we're bringing these three areas of training and applying them to the whole area of race, racism, and how it might be transformed. And I want to acknowledge, as I did last time, that this is a very challenging area, often very charged, some of you may have seen uh, Ruth King's book, Mindful of Race, which is which is on my reading list. I know some of you at least have seen that. Uh, Ruth calls this whole area messy at best. So with that understanding, I'm encouraging us, and I'm sure that Brian will do something very similar in his group to really bring one's mindfulness, one's compassion, one's empathy for others, for oneself into this whole process. Uh, Having the aim to understand oneself, to understand others, to understand the very uh, painful social reality and to as much as possible, take an approach which I and others sometimes call um, no blame, no shame, at least in our, in our home communities, to try to have empathy, understanding, not to tag someone if they say something that doesn't sound quite right, but really to know that for all of us, this material is hard, it's... Uh, to a large extent, unconscious. I'll talk about that more later. And yet, a lot of the tools that we develop in our practice are very, very crucial. I'll also bring this out more today, our tools of mindfulness, being able to be with what comes up in a non-reactive way, our tools of uh, compassion, equanimity, and so forth. So also very helpful just to acknowledge one's own perspective. I did that for myself in some detail last time, you know, particularly mentioning that my own um, ancestry is Jewish and uh, one of the fascinating things about looking at race is that uh, everything is somewhat unstable, a Nietzsche, impermanent. Some of you know that at one time in US history, Jews were not considered white people. And that it generally only changed between 1945 and 1965. There's a whole book on how Jews became white folk. And so I had in my upbringing, uh, the experience of being treated at times as an other. And so I mentioned that last time. and, And of course, all of us, have or will experiences in which we're treated as um, less than or not part of the dominant group, whether it's because of gender, sexual orientation, or age. When they've done the research actually on implicit bias and the unconscious biases that people have, they have found that the bias against older people is actually more powerful than the bias against black people. doesn't mean it has the same effect, because there's not so much institutional power. But just in people's minds, uh, that's there. And if we're lucky enough to live longer, that is something we'll experience. So we all experience aspects of that. So what I want to do today is to review briefly what I explored yesterday, not yesterday, last week, sorry. What I explored last week, uh, review that briefly, and then focus the rest of the time on how our inner work can contribute to the transformation of racism, how particularly our meditative forms, mindfulness, compassion, other heart practices particularly, can really be key to exploring and transforming racism. That's, that'll be my main focus today, looking at the inner dimension. And then next week, I'll particularly focus on the ethical training and how uh, our ethical practice really particularly leads us to a stance of not harming of looking for any way that we might be harming through our actions, through our words, even through our thoughts. And it also, I believe, guides us to respond to harm being done by others or by the institutions. That's part of the ethical commitments, part of the ethical training. So that'll be the focus, particularly next week. That'll be where we connect more with action in the world. So today it's more looking at the inner work after I do this review. So I had three perspectives last time that can orient us towards how we understand and approach the whole phenomenon of racism. And the first of these was reflecting on how the historical Buddha rejected something somewhat akin to race. He rejected the caste system of the India, of what we now call India, of 2,600 years ago. And there's a very interesting perspective that uh, I've come to. I haven't heard other people say it, but I mentioned last time that the caste system was set up by uh, those that are often called the Aryan invaders of uh, first Northwest India and then the rest of India, coming from a uh, part of, let's see, we don't want to use screensaver now, so thank you, or the screen sharing, sorry. Um, coming from the uh, area that's now Iran or and Turkey. And these invaders were lighter skinned. They subjugated the darker skinned people. So here we have the Buddha coming from a presumably lighter skinned background in relation to the more darker skinned indigenous people, largely subjugated, becoming the workers, laborers, and even the slaves of that society. And being born into a privileged background, and then in his own expression of his own understanding, rejecting the whole system in his own teachings. And I gave some detail on that last time, talking about how uh, he saw that one's ancestry and the family one was born into had nothing to do with the nobility or purity of one's being, but this was only a result of one's actions. And within the uh, Sangha, within the Buddhist community, everyone was welcome. And there's a long tradition going through India uh, of Buddhist communities having great teachers who often were darker skinned. That's in the tradition. So that was the first perspective. The second perspective is to start from the core of our practice, which is to transform greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what our practice is about. We look at the various forms of grasping, wanting, the way that that comes out of some kind of generalized greed. Sometimes or very specific greed, and we see how that compulsive, often unconscious grasping, leads to suffering. In a parallel way, we see how the uh, unconscious, compulsive, often automatic pushing away can also lead to suffering. Very easy to see in interpersonal expressions of reactivity, being judgmental, hostile, having hatred, and so forth. And then all of this is fueled by delusion by our, in many ways, not knowing who we are, not knowing the depths of our being, not knowing our interconnection, believing that we are separate, independent beings. And largely thinking that happiness comes from uh, grasping and pushing away. And so that's the core teaching. Last time we also saw how we can understand, this is very important for orienting ourselves towards racism or other kinds of uh, oppression, is that greed, hatred, and delusion can be institutionalized. And we can interpret racism as a form of institutionalized uh, Hatred going along with with greed often being its motivation. And I'll get to that when I talk about the third perspective. And so we looked last time at a number of different ways that, and by the way, uh, Terry, I think I'm not going to use the uh, screen share, I've decided, okay, so... Uh, we looked last time at a number of different ways that these uh, disparities play out. And I was looking at it particularly in terms of comparing blacks and whites, and we could also look at that in terms of other uh, uh, disparities for other people of color, uh, indigenous people, and so forth. Uh, that we looked at how there were differences in terms of health. Uh, average age of death, 3.5 years younger for blacks compared to whites, all sorts of other disparities of, of wealth, of uh, social policies. Many of us know that the New Deal policies of uh, uh, social security, later the GI Bill and so forth, were applied, were available for black people in a very, very limited way. In large part, this was, well, in terms of Social Security and some of the New Deal policies, it was because that was the bargain made to be able to get the support of Southern uh, southern senators and Congress people. So there are these kind of disparities uh, that are there and, uh, I think we all know that. We all, we all know about those vast disparities that are there in turn, you know, all sorts of parameters. It's important also to see, and this is adding a point I didn't go into so much last time, that the institutionalization also translates into how, in this case, black people internalize these inequities. And there's a, I'll just give one example of that, a very telling example that some of you probably know about from having studied it. There were um, studies done by Mamie and Kenneth Clark, who were psychologists living in New York. There were studies done, the so called DAL tests, of essentially uh, black girls being shown. Black girls, I think between about four and nine, if I remember correctly, being shown dolls, white dolls and black dolls. And they were asked, what's the nice doll? Universally, the black girls pointed to the white dolls. Then they were asked, which doll is like you? Some people pointed to, some of the girls pointed to the black dolls, some just could not point to anything. There was a kind of, uh, what, uh, freezing. And so we can look at that example, which is very uh, heartbreaking in a way, and see that this institutionalization isn't just about policies or health, but it's also about people's very consciousness, their very inner state. And what we'll see that we all internalize so much from the society. Um, Again, we could find parallels uh, according to gender, sexual orientation, age, ability, educational level, and so forth. So that was my second perspective. The third perspective is that uh, race is a construction. There's no, what, uh, relationship to anything ultimately real about race. There's no biological reality, the biologists have said that for a long time, but rather we can see that race is a construction that develops historically at a certain time. And I gave you some of the details of the history last time about how race developed in colonial Virginia, in the latter part of the 17th uh, century. And we could see very clearly how race became a uh, method used by the wealthy to divide and conquer. And essentially, I would claim that it's been that way since that race has divide and conquer, it takes on an energy of its own. But to know that history is very interesting. You remember that history where at the end of the uh, 17th century, there were actually rebellions in which uh, white indentured servants and uh, blacks who were mostly slaves and other uh, people we now call whites. They were not called whites at the time. They were called English you know, or they were called by their religion or their country of origin, they joined together against the rich. After the rebellion, the rich said, wait, the rebellion was caused by those dangerous slaves, the dangerous people of African background. And they created a whole system intensifying slavery and uh, making it hereditary and setting up um, the poorer whites, who were now for the first time called whites. You know, one person I've studied with John Powell, who's a teacher at Berkeley, he said, literally, one night they went to sleep and the next night they were told they were white, right? It's like that, it was very, very sudden, happening at the end of the 17th century, and so, we can see right up to our present time that kind of divide and conquer policy. And I, I wanted to play a little bit of a song. Uh, some of you may remember this. This is uh, the beginning of a song uh, written by uh, Mr. Bob Dylan when he was 22 years old and sung. That This recording is from when he s- sang the song. It's called Only a Pawn in Their Game. I'll play about the first minute and a half. This was actually, from the recording is from him singing this at the March on Washington in August 1963 at the same event where Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. So I'll play the beginning of this. It's making the point about divide and conquer. We can't hear it. I think I know what it is. Okay. spark two eyes took the aim behind a man's brain but he can't be blamed he's only Gain as he rises to fame, and the poor white remains on the caboose of the train. But it ain't him to blame, he's only a pawn. Upon... So that was from 1963, and I think we can see. Can you hear me okay now? It's okay. Okay. We can see that. Uh, I think. See. I. I think seeing racism in terms of divide and conquer is really, really crucial. And I think it suggests a strategy. I've been very influenced by the work of Ian Haney Lopez. I think I mentioned him last time, who has. Uh, written a number of different books, one of them called Dog Whistle Politics. These are on the reading list that I have, another called Merged Left. He says that the key to actually resolving racism at a societal level is making a connection between economic justice and racial justice. Basically, it's to undo the divide and conquer strategy an upshot of that is that if um, if white people do not see it being in their own interests, including and especially economic interests to transform racism, it's not going to happen. And so undoing that divide and conquer strategy is very crucial. It means also that the work of transforming racism has to be really ultimately collaborative even if people do some individual work together. So that's, that's what I've come to more clarity about from both knowing the history and seeing the dynamics of the last 50 years. You look at certainly the present uh, policy but you can see it all the way back to Nixon. It's all divide and conquer, law and order, the drug war, very obvious with the current president that it's uh, he's trying to do divide and conquer as if that would help uh, his cause. And it did help to a certain extent, 2016. So that's what I covered last time. And today, looking into this, this second whole area of training, which is the area of what we could call doing inner work. I think if we have those larger perspectives, it can be really helpful for seeing the world, developing larger strategies, and so forth. But one of the great benefits of our practice is it gives us tools, which are crucial tools for the inner work. And I think if we remember that story I told about the girls internalizing what we now would call um, oppression, uh, actually manifesting what we call internalized oppression. Just as some white people, or most white people, manifest internalized privilege, we see that there's a very big role for working with our own inner conditioning. And this is where a lot of the the uh, practices that we've been developing can be really, really crucial and have a a really important role to play that one doesn't find easily in, for example, in social justice settings. They largely don't focus on inner work. And so it's a natural uh, to combine them. That's what I'm suggesting. So there are a variety of ways that we can explore, study, uh, transform racism in a more inner way. One of the best ways to do this is to combine meditative practices with participation in small groups, such as the one that Brian will lead. You know, I've, I've been part of a number of different groups um, and for for my in my own experience, for about three and a half years, I facilitated a group of uh, white Dharma teachers who were, and we basically read books together. It's a very good method. Ruth King calls this the forming of racial affinity groups. You could do it with one other person. Generally, it's good to do with people of your own ethnic background, your own uh, uh, racial background. Generally, that's, that's a good way to go. And so so that there can be a chance for honest discussion for quote unquote, making mistakes for um, bringing in compassion and empathy and so forth. So I want to mention four approaches to inner work. Again, I think they can happen well, when we combine reading, study, one's own inner work with participation in groups. That's that's sort of a, a very good formula for doing it. So I'm gonna talk about four ways to do inner work and uh, with the third way, I'll, I'll mention them. The first is, first of all, just understanding how unconscious implicit uh, bias works. A second is bringing mindfulness into Uh, our exploration and transformation of racism. A third is bringing the heart practices in, particularly compassion, empathy, um, I think forgiveness too. Uh, I'll primarily focus on compassion and empathy. And then fourthly, um, finding regular ways to touch the deeper expressions of our own being, to touch our depths, to touch our depths where the conditioning is not there. And so I'll talk about these four. And so first is the nature of our conditioning being in large part unconscious. That makes things harder, right? How many of you know some about the concept of implicit bias? Okay, so, so a number of you. So I'll, I'll, I'll speak about this. I think the work's been developed particularly in the last 15 years, and there are some very good books which give summaries. One of my favorite books, probably my favorite book on uh, going into this area and connecting it to some extent with Dharma is a book called Deep Diversity by Shaquille Chaudhry. And this has a very, very good summary of the work on implicit bias. The basis for implicit bias comes from the fact that we, as human beings, are members of groups. And groups tend to form into in-groups and out-groups. And we're all in certain in-groups and out-groups. And some of these uh, may be just based on interest. I may be in an in-group of uh, stamp collectors, right? There also are in-groups and out-groups that are related to social hierarchies. You know, I'm in the group of, uh, you know, I may be in the group of white people. That's the in-group and the out-group may be people of color or maybe black people. And similarly, there's, there, you know, where, we have, where this becomes problematic is where the in-groups and out-groups could get connected with power. You know, so we again, we know all sorts of ways that happens with race, gender, again, ability, disability, educational level, level, age, sexual orientation, and so forth, right? And so what tends to happen is that we tend to learn how to relate to people in our in-groups and out-groups fairly automatically to the point where it becomes quite unconscious. Um, Generally speaking, the brain likes things to be automatic. One one scientist said, the brain does not like consciousness. So this is at odds with our meditation practice, right? (laughs) The brain does not like consciousness. It likes to be on automatic. It likes to develop routines. It thinks, so to speak, that it's more efficient that way. And so the brain likes to find the familiar, have routines, not need to bring every moment into consciousness. And so when we're in an in-group, we develop routines. We have a... uh, you know, as a member of a group of uh, the group of white people, we have certain routines that we have. We know, you know, again, there, there's variety here, but generally in an in-group there, we know the rules of the game. We're familiar with the people. We uh, have a sense of what's normal. We tend with members of our own in-group to be generous and overlook mistakes. We tend to be more empathic. We tend to have more trust and we tend to uh, very easily seek out people in our own group. You know, this is connected with, uh, for uh, gay and lesbian people, they have what's called gaydar. Like there's a sense of connecting and this is also true for Jewish people. There's often a way that 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 occurs. So we, are, we have certain rules or guidelines for people in our in-group that we're not conscious of. It forms the background. We learn these, we learn these when we're very, very young. We learn gender rules, for example, when we're uh, by age three um, and so forth. For the out-group, you know, if you think of, in one instance, whites and blacks, Members of the in-group, the white people, may generally feel uncomfortable with members of the out-group. They're often seen as representatives of the group, not seen as individuals so much. And how many of you have been in work situations where maybe there are uh, two or three black people where people are often getting them confused? How many people have seen that phenomena? In work situations, yeah. So that would be an example for that. Those in in one group don't know the rules for interaction in another. So there there is confusion. There's a certain amount of anxiety. Maybe a certain amount of frustration. This leads people often to make. Um, uh, judgmental statements about those in the outgroup, right? That uh, uh, they are not good, they are not doing it right. Partly we don't understand, uh, and this is this is done fairly universally across all cultures when they're in groups and out groups like this, where one knows the rules of the in group but not the out group. Are you getting a sense of how this might apply to uh, conditioning about race? so much of it is unconscious, right? And so we have ourselves often a sense, oh, I'm a good person. I don't wanna consciously do anything wrong. One One of the issues that comes up with implicit bias is that when our training around the implicit bias conflicts with what we believe or what we think ethically, generally, the unconscious bias always wins. That's pretty startling, isn't it? In other words, we may uh, believe in equality, but we find ourselves in a certain situation, and we find the unconscious bias working. Right. So it's very humbling, isn't it, that we have a large amount of our conditioning is is unconscious. Now, one of the hopeful things about the fact that we're all in multiple in groups and out groups is that all of us, especially if we get to be uh, older, know what it's like to be in an out group. How many of you can recognize yourself being in some group that's not the higher group? It could be around you know, gender, sexual orientation and so forth. This is actually very helpful because we have a sense of what the dynamics are and we can have some energy to be empathic towards the places and actually look more deeply to the places where we're in the in-group. That all of us are not just in in-groups, but we're also, especially again, if we are older, but even young people are generally, could be considered an out-group. So we've all experienced that, not having certain rights, not being seen, you know, not being really seen clearly. So that can be actually very helpful. So maybe just to finish up with this point about implicit bias. Um, even where people want to be practice equality, the implicit bias dictates behavior, and they have found this very, very clearly in studies. For example, um, there, was, there were analyses of employers reading resumes across a variety of types of occupation. And there were resumes sent with very, very similar qualifications. Probably many of you know of these studies. Some of them had English sounding names like Greg Johnson or Emily Brown. Others had names like Dong Lu, or Fatima Sheikh, or maybe Jamal, or or Latisha, right? What they found was that those with the English-sounding names were asked for interviews for on a, a level 40% higher. And those studies have been replicated, uh, you know, a number of different times. Um, and what they found is that that's even the case where the organizations are proclaiming, we want diversity, right? We could say that that's a kind of uh, unconscious bias. Another way that that's been studied is in um, hospitals, in emergency rooms. They've done tests with doctors uh, in many cities where they have the same patient profile and some of them have photos that show they're white people, some that are black people. And the doctors in these studies all said they want to treat people equally, but when they, what they found was that there were different levels of bias, but those at the higher level of bias would not give uh, anti-clotting drugs to people with heart conditions. It's well known that, that black people get much a worse treatment with, uh, with heart disease. And so they have found that, that and attribute attributed it to this unconscious bias. They also find that police are much more likely to take a camera to be a gun with black people than with white people. Does that make sense? It's um, it's a lot, right? So how do we work with implicit bias? What kind of inner work do we do? Um, you know, one of the ways that implicit bias gets changed is when one actually pays attention to people in the out group who one can admire, who are maybe role models in a certain way. Maybe you focus on you know people. Some people, for some people that was Barack Obama or uh, people that one admires, really get to know them. Or maybe one studies uh, Arab uh, Muslim culture, you know, from 500, 1,000 years ago and sees the richness of the culture. So one way you, you, you uh, go against implicit bias is by actually tuning in to really positive aspects. Um, uh, they, they have found that willpower and inner motivation to get at one's unconscious bias plays a big role. A very crucial role can be played by mindfulness, that when we can, that when we have mindfulness, we can notice much more what's coming through and we can see those levels of bias. We can see our minds working and Again, we want to take somehow a no shame, no blame approach to all this. Another big influence on cutting through unconscious bias is having friendships and connections that, that go between groups, you know, so that one can develop empathy and connection. So empathy, curiosity, uh, greater learning, seeing films, all of these play a role. So that leads me to the second inner training is that of mindfulness, which we are fully doing. And again, we can notice that our mindfulness gives us the capacity to be with our experience increasingly non-reactively. We can also investigate and notice. We can set our radar for those kinds of implicit bias. We can really try to notice what's there as much as possible without judging ourselves, just being open to what's there. That's why it's so important to be able to be part of a group because one can report, Oh, guess what I found in the last week? You know, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but this is what I found, right? Or, you know, and I should just say that the, as I mentioned, the internalization and the unconscious bias is there for everyone. It's not just white people. I think I I, think I might have given last time a quote from uh, Jesse Jackson. Did I give the Jesse Jackson quote last time? Maybe not. But Jesse Jackson said he was very embarrassed that he noticed, this was from about 25 years ago, that one day, one night, he was walking down the street. He heard, he heard footsteps behind him. He turned around, noticed they were white people and was relieved, right? And Desmond Tutu tells a very similar story of being on an airplane which had two black pilots having turbulence and wondering whether the pilots were well-trained. This is a black man, right? So that can give us some, to me that helps to know that everyone has the same conditioning, you know? And uh, when you, you know, most, um, I think most, I think when they found uh, there are pretty high levels of anti-black bias in black people. And they're anti-black, there's anti-black bias in almost every ethnic group, including black people. So that's very important. So we want to have an approach where we just try to see what's there and notice it, be in a group. It might be embarrassing, it might be hard, but this is how we work through it. Mindfulness is also really crucial we're working with the emotions that come up when we're investigating and working with racism, that we can see that at times there's guilt or shame, we're judgmental towards ourselves, we have fear, some kind of distress, particularly negative emotions. We have great tools for working with these states and seeing what's beneath them So our training is very, very crucial, but we have to apply it. Just one thing to say, when we're going into difficult states, something that's been an important point for me is that we wanna be really clear when we're working with difficult states related to race, wanna be clear what the intensity level is. I I like to use a scale of one to 10 and know whether you're dealing with a five or six or a nine or a 10. Because in this area, I think for white people as well, some, some of us have trauma, and the trauma can lead to high levels of activation where we actually can't be mindful in that, those moments. We have to use other practices that can help us with those activated states. You know, And that's especially true for people of color, but also also for white people. <clears throat> so we wanna look and try to notice our mind states notice our mind states in the presence of black people notice assumptions we take and the reading can be very helpful read reading books like uh, on white fragility or reading about different dimensions of the what are called you know the unearned benefits of being white seeing these more clearly this can really help with mindfulness we can also notice uh, projections. We can notice our fears. We can notice how uh, what we find may conflict with our sense of ourselves as good people, right? And we want to notice everything like that. We want to keep on, keep on studying it. And there, there are all sorts of wonderful questions that can be asked. I, I brought a few of these together in the quote-unquote assignment I gave last time, but they're wonderful questions that one can ask. Uh, In Ruth King's book, which is another good one to work with, uh, Mindful of Race, she has, uh, in the middle of the book, about four or five pages listing a series of questions that are really good inquiry questions to see, uh, to look into one's conditioning, to look into one's identity. Mm -hmm third area of training i think are heart practices really really crucial and i think these you know i'm thinking particularly about i'll mention i'll talk about compassion and empathy but we could also talk about forgiveness that to go into this area is to to go deliberately into a painful territory you know at times painful there can also be uplifting moments but a lot of this is painful and we have to be willing to go against our conditioning, which says, I don't wanna go into what's unpleasant or difficult, you know? And so our training in meditation helps us with that. It can be very, very beneficial when we're feeling pretty balanced to deliberately go into difficult territory and work with compassion. Compassion is one of the heart practices in which we with ourselves and others, use phrases like many of us know from loving kindness, we might say, may you be free of suffering and the roots of suffering. You know, just one practice I'll invite right now, just for a few moments, see if you can resonate with this, you know, to bring to mind several of the people who have died, who are black people who've died from the police, Bring to mind, you know, maybe George Floyd. Imagine that they have families and friends. Bring your heart into that situation. And feel its tenderness. Feel what it's like for a people who've had trauma for 400 years to have yet another traumatic experience. You may find yourself wanting to say in a genuine way, may you be free of suffering and the roots of suffering to the surviving family members, to maybe people you know. It can be very helpful to go into that territory deliberately using compassion practice, going into the hard territory with the motivation to cultivate compassion. It can generate a lot of uh, powerful energy that, that can lead towards one's own inner work as well as action. There can be a creativity which comes out of compassion. And especially helpful if we're more insulated from the pain you know, that we deliberately can go into what's painful if we're more insulated and this can activate compassion, can activate empathy, and so forth. So I think we need deliberately to do this from time to time in a variety of ways. May lead us to wanting to act. We can also try to develop empathy. Try to maybe we read the papers and we deliberately try to say, What's it like for this person? What emotions are there? What's important for this person? Maybe people in our community who may be uh, maybe black or may have a certain kind of oppression or difficulty. We can also uh, watch films, read read uh, novels just to go into the world that can arouse the compassion. And I think it's very important also to bring the compassion to ourselves for being in this world where we have systems that are oppressive. You know, and some of you know this very helpful practice from Kristin Neff, a self-compassion practice where we have three steps. The first is, and I invite you to do this, maybe in relation to being with what comes up with racism. First. Bringing to mind something that's hard in relation to racism and staying with it for a while. Again, maybe in the middle range, five or six or seven. What's hard? And we just acknowledge, this is difficult for me. Maybe it's difficult to talk about this or I get nervous or whatever. Just to Touch in, acknowledge it's difficult. And then secondly, acknowledge that this is something that happens to many others. Maybe people in one's own group. I'm not alone, this happens to others. And then thirdly, we simply offer kind words to ourselves. I'm nervous about discussions. Maybe I'd say, "May I be as skillful and really commit to learning. Offer kind words to yourself. So that those forms of compassion practice can be very helpful. And then the fourth area, I'll just mention briefly, I think it is very, very helpful to, to keep spending times in beautiful states, not as a escapism, but to spend time, you know, in the beauty of the earth, with the beauty of the earth, in with loving kindness, extending to all beings, or being with qualities of loving kindness or compassion, or joy, those of you who have sometimes accessed what we might call non-dual states or states of no distinction can be very inspiring to know the, another way to say this is to have regular ways that you touch your own depths. I think this is a very crucial practice for working with racism as well. Again, not as escapism, or spiritual bypassing, but simply to know, keep on knowing the human potential. So let me finish by inviting us just to reflect, where do I feel drawn to develop my own practice? And then I'll finish with a very brief quotation from the uh, cover of one edition of the 9X Yellow Pages. On the cover of the 9X Yellow Pages, it says something which is applicable for our work. If it's out there, it's in here. I hope that's okay to end with a little bit of a humorous note on a very serious topic, but the the whole point is to, uh, we wanna connect the inner and the outer. So let me finish with that and uh, open things up. Any questions, reflections? And I think we wanna use the uh, raise hand function, which is under participants. I can't see everyone. I can see most people, but not everyone. And uh, Terry, can you help with that? So you could and if you want to, you could also if you for any reason don't want to speak publicly, you can send something in a chat. Send a question or comment any any question about anything I said, question of clarification or ask something about my own experience or or really anything. The is up. Okay. Hi, there. Hi, Hi Larissa. Hi. Um, so I was sort of intrigued by something you said way at the beginning. When you said that social justice does not include inner work. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, it was a generalization, but I, I would say that some of our standard approaches to social justice don't don't involve inner work. This is the more secular ones. If we think of someone like Dr. King or religiously based social justice work, clearly that involves a certain kind of inner work, prayer mm-hmm. and so forth. But I would say the the more secular social justice work. And again, it's a broad generalization, but, and I think there are a lot of exceptions, but broadly speaking, it operates, seems to operate more on the question of policy, identifying structures of oppression, yeah. and uh, not so much seeing the way that it manifests in an inner way. Okay, that yeah, it's interesting. what what's coming to my mind though, is that surge standing up for racial justice. Yeah. groups appear to be moving in that direction, at least locally. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but moving in moving in in the direction of having some inner work. Yes, yeah. Well, I think people are seeing that it's crucial. and I, uh-huh. I think it I think it's a a gross generalization and probably applies to a lot but it's the way in which uh you know it's the way in which there's not necessarily Or right, let me back up uh i was invited about quite a while ago 15 years ago to a, a conference on spiritual activism and i uh i gave a workshop giving a curriculum for how to more or less connect inner and outer work and i asked people in their in your social justice groups what are the major issues or what's what's most difficult and the answer from so many people was we're actually all get angry towards each other and we don't eat, treat each other well we have conflicts in ourselves which we don't among ourselves which we don't deal with in other words the problem is more out there but not in here so much Again, it's a generalization, but I think it's it can be found in a lot of groups, and mm-hmm. uh, you know there may not be so much attention to compassion, empathy, uh, how one deals with conflicts, the inner dimension of uh, uh, the problems that one's looking at. Now, I think with with race and racism, there's maybe more attention to that because we were looking at conditioning. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I think one of the reasons I made the point is that there's a natural way that elements of the social justice tradition and Buddhist practice are mutually complementary. You know, for example, the book uh, Deep Diversity by Shaquille Chaudhry. it's a very interesting book because he describes his own experience of first being this firmly... Uh, committed social justice activists, particularly on race, and actually getting burned out, that he was filled with anger and was not given ways to work with the anger, for example. So his own story is very interesting in this book. And he found that bringing in more of an inner perspective, not giving up the social justice perspective, but having integration is a way to go. Yeah, thank thank you LaRosa for that. It's fine to ask uh, half-baked questions. Many of you have half-baked questions now. They're fine to ask. I will not I will do my best to be friendly. I have something, Donald. Okay. So, if I heard you correctly earlier on, you said that you know there has to be some uh, Advantage or some gain for white people in this, for yeah. things that, is that right? Yeah. I, w- I was we, saying that that's actually important, and again, that's not always recognized right? by, even by uh, diversity trainers. There has to be some uh, interest, major interest for white people to be supportive of anti-racist efforts. Yeah. So can you speak more on that? What What comes to mind, what might be advantageous to a white person yeah well uh i'm influenced a lot again by the work of ian haney lopez who talks about the importance of connecting economic justice and racial justice so uh, for a large part of the population it's important to see the divide and conquer policy and how um uh, racism has been used as a way to give uh, power to the wealthy elites. And again, it's that way from the beginning. And so it's actually, and one of the main places where the, uh, uh, Dr. Lopez has worked is actually with unions. And so they've been uh, based, so, so there's economic interest for large numbers of people. If there was actually a dismantling of racism there could be, it would, it, and it was combined with economic justice. So he's saying that not, if you only focus on racial justice, you'll lose uh, the majority of white people. And they've they've done, they've substantiated that through polls and white people will think I'm the problem, right? So you have to well, somehow, so some of the interest is economic. That's very clear, but it's also in shifting Shifting away from the kind of a lot of the core qualities of our economic system, you know, which we can see very clearly now, that uh, you know uh, the the problems with the health care system. the uh, fact, I think I think the figures I saw, for example, are that uh, uh, about thirty million white people live in poverty, right? The the loss, you know, a lot of the uh, so-called, a lot of the people who went from Obama to Trump in the 2016 election were in the so-called white working class and they bought the divide and conquer bait, so to speak, where they took it. And they're interested in uh, having cities which were alive, having work which is meaningful. And if one could, again, connect economic and racial justice, that'd that would be one thing. That would reach a big chunk of people. And again, they've, they've tested those hypotheses in, in various ways. And I think another one is just to ask, what kind of society do we want? Is it in my interest to live in a society without oppression? Is, you know, we could call that more of a moral interest. And I think that's uh, that's that can be very significant for white people as well. And can uh, can white people also be part of the the efforts to change things? So, and, and that's obviously happening now. So, some of it's economic, some of it's in terms of uh, morality. Um, Yeah, some of it's some of it's in char in terms of having uh, of moving towards the kind of world that we want, and really, really asking ourselves what kind of world do we want. So I think that starts to get at it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Thank yeah. you Stephen. I think also, Donald, the way that um, young people are more Identified with a global culture than their more local culture, mm-hmm. so that, that race is not as big a defining uh, construct for many young people. That's that's right, and you know you led me to think about another very important detail. It'd be interesting to do a, a kind of a question here. But I, again, I think I learned this from John Powell who, who wrote a very interesting book called Racing to Justice who is, directs uh, some wonderful conferences that happen in the Bay Area every two or three years called Othering and Belonging. And he has writing, but he said that uh, essentially, I think it was approaching 40, even getting towards 50% But I think the figure I remember was 40% of all American families have racial diversity in them, in their Mm -hmm. extended families. And that this this plays a big role. And I I found this in teaching on Wednesdays. I found people who were white and had lived mostly in white communities saying, you know, my grandchild is black. And suddenly Mm -hmm. the level of interest and commitment is incredible right right. it's actually very i I feel emotionally moved just saying that but this is a very significant fact 40 percent is and it's probably increasing every year right Mm -hmm. so people who you know and it's true for my extended family how many people's extended family is that true for where you have uh right so is that part of your motivation anyone want to speak to that Like you're not just doing this for yourself, but you're, yeah, I wanna have a world where my nephew is safe, right, or something like that. Anyone wanna speak to that point? Or any other point? (laughs) had my hand up, but I don't know if we have time for another question. Let's take one more, yeah, then we can finish up. Okay. Um, you know, Donald, this may be something you get into next week, but I'm thinking about uh, the nature of armed resistance and violent, you know, resistance toward oppression. And, yeah. um, you know, supposedly Malcolm X of the Black Panthers said the only white he would consider allowing to join the Black Panthers was John Brown because he picked up arms to try to free slaves, right? And he was willing mm-hmm. to fight physically. And so with the looting that happened, which of course there were all sorts of reasons looting happened and some of it had nothing to do with protest, with racism naturally, but yeah. you know, what do, we, what do we feel with folks who feel they really need a strong, more even violent movement to actually create change in the country? Yeah, yeah, um, I'm sure that's a a deep question being asked in many quarters. Um, And, you know, maybe two ways of responding. First, just to say that, um, maybe three ways to respond. First is that at times historically, in the U.S., some violence has sometimes woken people up. Right, And it's always to understand where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. A second perspective is that, I didn't mention this explicitly, but what we call the dog whistling, the, uh, the strategy of divide and conquer always operates on the basis of saying, these black people are dangerous. You know, we have to protect against the, the dangerous black people. Again, it's in code for the last 50 years. So they talk about law and order, or they talk, or they have the war on drugs, or you know any number of things that the current president has said. It's always about uh, making people feel that these people are dangerous. And I actually brought this in, I didn't uh, read from it, but I, w- I was reading in the paper two days ago the right-wing so-called populist president of Poland. He, here's, here's the line from their campaign. There was a bitter campaign in which the government, state media, and the influential Roman Catholic Church all mobilized in support of this right-wing leader and sought to stoke fears of Jews, LGBT people, and Germans. So divide and conquer always works with fear, and my general sense is that from a strategic point of view, uh, violence is not not even going to work, even if even if one could approve of it ethically, which I don't. But even from a strategic point of view, it goes right into the divide and conquer strategy, and will will be counterproductive. But probably the main reason I have is more. More ethical that you know personally, I'm very much with uh, uh, I'm very much with the nonviolence of Gandhi and King, and that uh, and it really is about the vision which one has for the society. Uh, you know, King talks about the beloved society. Gandhi wanted a society in which there could be reconciliation with the British, right? He said, "I want." the British came as conquerors, I want to leave as friends. And, you know, King talked about how the movement had to be based on love, which can turn opposers into friends, right? And so nonviolence means that one's uh, tools, one's strategies have to be consistent with one's Deeper values. There are a lot of complexities to that. Gandhi, at one point, actually said that he would rather people be violent than uh, 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 lack the courage to act. So there, you know, he actually said he would rather see people be courageous and violent than non-courageous and not act. He said that once, right? So there are complexities. King never said anything like that, to my best of my knowledge, but. Basically, I think that the, you know, I've, I've done some seminars at Spirit Rock with my friend, uh, Kazu Haga, who wrote a very, very good book just now uh, on nonviolence called Healing Resistance. And we, we did a number of uh, uh, short retreats, non-residential retreats, on the connection between uh, the nonviolence of Gandhi and King and Buddhist practice. And I think at the center, it's exactly the same. That is, we transform greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, which I interpret greed and hatred as forms of reactivity. We learn how to transform reactivity, and the aim is to move from being reactive to being responsive. And we, when, we, when there is something painful or oppressive, we meet it with mindfulness, care, compassion, and skillful response. And I think the nonviolent movement is exactly the same. So there's a deep inner coherence between Buddhist practice and the uh, understanding of nonviolence of uh, King and Gandhi. I recommend Kazu's book, it's very good. But I think we also probably have recordings on Dharma seed on that theme. So I think for those would be the reasons I would give. Yeah. But it's a it's a great question. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I think we're at time now. Should we finish up now with a, a dedication of Maradona? Yes, please. Yeah. So first, seeing how you're motivated to explore this, let's say in the next week, two options. One is to go back to the questions and readings, which I gave last week, which are on the website. Do some further reading, work with reflection questions that are that are given there. The second option is to work with one of those compassion practices and generally bring mindfulness to anything connected with one's own mind, conditioning, and so forth. But you could do the compassion practice in a very simple way. Bring something difficult or painful to mind and work with compassion in the way that we just did in this session. So see what calls you for the next week. How many would like to do one of the things I mentioned or something related to it in the next week in preparation for next week? You can raise your hand. How many of you would like to do something? Okay, very good. And then we go to the dedication of merit, very traditional ending. May our practice, may our interest in going deeper in these areas Be a benefit to us, be a benefit to those in our own circles, and be a benefit beyond our own circles to those who have been oppressed or marginalized, ultimately to all beings, which includes us. So thank you for your kind attention and for being willing to go into an often challenging territory. Thank you, everyone. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Donald. And, and Yeah. You're welcome. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Terry, for hosting. What I'd love to do is if we can unmute everyone or if you can unmute yourself and we could say, say goodbye. Donald, check the chat. There was a very interesting comment in the chat. Maybe for bye. bye, thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Uh, no, okay, till thank you thank you next Bye-bye. Hi, bye. bye bye. 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 Amanda. Bye. Hi, Holly. Hi, everybody. Hi, Kate. Hey, Steve. Hi, hi Amanda. am Silly. Hi, John Brennan. Hi, Chris. I'm Maybe we should oh, do hi. this at the beginning. Hi, Rob. Kate. Kate. Hey. Okay, bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Have a wonderful week. Thank you, you too. Thank you, Donald. Thank you. Bye, Carrie. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.